chapter 4. Okay, turn to your Bibles, please. To Jesus, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, have you nothing to draw water with? And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray over this time together. I pray for an extra measure of grace. As having labored through your word and thought through this deeply, what do your people need to hear? Lord, I pray that they would hear from your word that they'd hear very clearly what it means to be a true worshiper of you, Father, of you, Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, and which commands all to worship in spirit and truth, that we are to be a holy people called and set apart, a special people anointed by your Spirit, lovers of your word, lovers of your people, lovers of your creation. Lord, I pray that you would give the word today, Lord, that you would Hide me in your word, an extra measure of grace to preach and declare it faithfully, and to come to remembrance of the things that I've studied, that, Lord, your people would be blessed, that they would leave here worshipers, true worshipers, and a better understanding of what that means. I pray for those who do not know you, do not know your son, do not know what your son has accomplished on our behalf. I pray their eyes would be open, their ears would hear, and they'd be ready to obey Christ as their Lord and Savior. And pray for our time together in the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we have here? We have an interesting discussion between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, uh, one that is unique to all of Scripture. Right As we, we've seen Jesus here having a, a discussion, there are three predominant topics that I'd like to discuss today that I'd like to share with you, and hopefully that gives you a better understanding of what it means to be a true worshiper of God. 
See, the problem with the Samaritans and the Jews wasn't issue of worship. If you notice here in the conversation, and by the way, I could probably unpack this for weeks. There's, there's, this is theologically packed full, this brief conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But the thing that I would like to focus on today is true worship. What does it mean to actually worship the living God? If you've been in uh, the Sunday school for the last few weeks, I can say faithfully this will be the pinnacle of that discussion point. For those you have already heard some of this material, this will be the conclusion in a way to the Sunday school that we've been teaching and working through together to discuss what it is to be a true worshiper of the living God. And so if you notice in the conversation, there are three predominant topics that come up, themes, I would say, that come up in this conversation. One, there is a history that these two groups of people have, the Jews and the Samaritans, which we'll look at further today. Two, there's a discussion about family relationships. Note she refers to our father, Jacob. We're going to discuss that uh, in brief detail. And then the last point specifically, which we'll end with, will focus on worship, the nature of worship in that. So if you're a note taker, that will be our three primary points today. So what is the context? We want to look at the context of this particular text. That, that will help us better understand why is this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman so profound? Well, Jesus is a Jew, okay? And note, if you note, it says in speaking to the woman uh, at the well, he's doing so in midday. Now, if you understood how scandalous that would be, uh, most people did not come to draw water in midday. Most people came in either early morning or in the evening. Those folks who came in, in the midday period were usually uh, outcasts in society. So not only was Jesus talking to a woman at the well, and if you note parenthetically what it says here, and John wants, to, wants us to very clearly understand what, what's happening here, his disciples had gone away to buy food. You notice that. John, John kind of gives that, that insight. They went to buy food, and here's Jesus having a conversation with the woman, at the well, as a woman, and what is it? What does the, the conversation entail? She was had multiple men in her life, right? And Jesus calls her out on that very clearly. He says, "Well, no, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have five men in your life, right?" So here's a scandalous conversation with a woman who is known to be an outcast in her society. Wells were usually, and especially wells with this prominence, Jacob's well, particularly as a historic well. Uh, this particular well would have been in plain sight. Everybody would have seen them. And, G and John wants us to know, he is, Jesus is having this scandalous conversation with this known adulterous woman in midday at the well, and disciples are not present. The idea here is to go, what are they talking about, right? What could Jesus pos possibly have to do with this woman? So John wants us to understand that. When, disciples, when the disciples later return, if you go to verse 27, if you look at John, John giving us sort of the scene, it says that they marveled that he was talking to the woman, but no one asked him. No one said to Jesus, what do you seek? Or <laughs> why are you talking with her? Right? There was obviously something here going on where the, the, what Jesus was doing was out of the norm, especially with a Jew. Now with the Samaritans. So in verse, in verse 9, the woman inquires, how is it that you as a Jew seek and ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Note there's a distinction, right? This parenthetical statement, he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We want to ask ourselves the question, why? What's going on between the Jews and the Samaritans? Why would Jesus, not only talking to a scandal, this would have been a scandal even in Israel, in Jerusalem, right? Uh, 
let alone a Samaritan woman at that, uh, talking to an adulterous woman. But what is the issue, we want to ask the question, between the Samaritans and the Jews? Okay, so her family particularly, she notes, if you know, she draws back to Jacob. Now we know from history that Samaria was established as uh, the northern kingdom's capital by King Omri, who was formerly a, a military general during a time of civil war. Uh, and he, he actually capitulated, he's known to capitulate, meaning he has given himself over to pagan worship uh, under, that, under his rule, and that happened, that occurred, this pagan worship occurred all the way through Jeroboam II, who would be the, uh, the northern kingdom's last king. Samar- uh, the, the word Samar- Samaria particularly comes from the Hebrew word shimrim, I believe that's how you pronounce it. For those Hebrew experts, you can correct me later. Uh, but the particular word means keeper of the law. So that the noted, this capital was specifically making a statement, and this capital city ended up um, going from about the ninth century, established by Omri, all the way through, uh, we say, what was it, before Christ's empire, BCE, and then uh, uh Christ's empire, right, CE? Is that how, that's how it's properly, yeah, right? Thank you, Doug Wilson. So BCE, for all those, here we'll educate everybody today. BCE, 9th century BCE, 900 years before Christ, was before Christ's empire, right? Christ's empire is CE. So for those who would like to help educate others, just let them know that. Um, so ideally, that from the 9th century, when Omri established BCE, before Christ's empire, uh, it extended all the way till 500 CE during Christ's empire. I love that. That's my favorite. Uh, this city basically had tremendous prominence. It was uh, a, a trade route, uh, and it was it was used in a re- it was destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt by numerous empires over the over that history of time. So we're dealing nearly with a you know a thousand plus year history of. Uh, a, a particular city that was really a bane in Israel, and, and some would say even to this day. There's no longer a Samaria, per se, but there are certainly Samaritan people. Okay, So we need to know that about, about the history. Now, they also had their own version of the Pentateuch. They had their own version of the, of the uh, Torah. Okay, And they rejected the authority, by the way, of the prophets and the writings. So you remember when Jesus said, that all of the, the prophets, the law, the prophets, and the wisdom writings refer to whom? Me. Now, the Samaritans rejected that. They had their own version. As a matter of fact, their version of the Pentateuch said to, uh, in, in Exodus 20, I believe, is said to, that God had, had established this particular place in Mount Gerizim uh, to be the place of worship. I think it's Shechem, if I'm not mistaken. It's Shechem. Anyway, point being is, their own version of the Pentateuch had in Exodus 20, you're going to worship here. Versus the Jews, where? The city of David, right? In Jerusalem. So here you have a conversation, a theological conversation between the Samaritan woman at the well. This is where we worship. And Jesus is saying, woman, you don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. Salvation is what? Of the Jews. So we have an issue of a contention Going all the way back to Omri, they believe that these writings end up coming out later, can be dated all the way back to as early as uh, the establishment of the northern, the northern Kingdom and on. And so you have a clear contention. Place of worship and the very Word of God are the two areas of contention. Interesting enough, this is where we worship, and this is how we know that, right? Word of God. Not, not uncommon today. 
among many other cults who have a different place of worship, a different variance of worship, and a different place in which they do that, right? Amen. So during the post-exilic period in Babylon, uh, the, there was a reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which, uh, which threatened Samaria. Okay? The governors of, Sam- of Samaria therefore made accusations against the Jewish people to the Persian king in order to prevent the reconstruction of that temple in Ezra. You can find that in Ezra 4 through 5. Um, and however, uh, the, the Samaritan efforts failed. Uh, by the way, I'm directly quoting uh, Schreiner here, David Schreiner from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Why is that important? So when, Jew, the Jews were being, when the Jews were coming out of Babylon, they were reestablishing the temple. They were actually given uh, the go by Cyrus and then, the, the, and then Darius, I believe, who followed directly after him. They were given the go-ahead to rebuild and establish the temple under the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. Under Ezra, during that time, the Samaritans felt threatened. So the reason why is, during the Assyrian Empire, after the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdoms, they began to reestablish, they allowed people to return, but those people were a mixed multitude, they weren't Jews only. And those people began to intermarry with the Jews. Okay, So they felt threatened because Samaria at the time had a high prominence socio-politically. Okay? And that's an important thing to understand when you're reading Ezra and Nehemiah during that period. Going on here to continue with Schreiner, the prophetic corpus generally exhibits a disdain for Samaria. So we need to understand that the body of the prophets has a certain feeling towards the people of Samaria, targeting it as a recipient of imminent judgment. In Micah 1, Samaria is the embodiment of sin. Hosea and Amos specifically target the corruption, violence, and apostasy of Samaria, and its monarchy. Burglary and violence were rampant, according to Hosea 7.1. Samaria's officials were corrupt and immoral, according to Hosea 7.2-7. And in Samaria, the poor and oppressed were victimized, according to Amos 4.1. Samaria was also the hub of idolatrous practices, in Hosea 8.5-6, and also in Amos 8.14. Judgment was also pronounced against Samaria for their role in the Syro-Ephraimite War. Isaiah mocks Samaria for their attempted intimidation of Judah in Isaiah 7-9, through 9, and eventually proclaiming the spoil of Samaria to be carried away by the king of Assyria in Isaiah 8-4. However, references to Samaria with the prophetic corpus are not all death and judgment. That's very important. This is a distinction. Samaria had been proclaimed judgment for all the things that I just shared, but there is also some light for Samaria. In Obadiah, the prophet pronounces that Samaria will again be inhabited by God's people in Obadiah 19. Ezekiel proclaims that Samaria will be restored alongside Jerusalem after judgment has accomplished its purifying purposes in Ezekiel 16. And thus, the prophetic corpus allows a ray of hope to pierce an otherwise gloomy picture. Therefore, there is a future for Samaria, but it is in relation with the future of Jerusalem. So always, Samaria's, the, the gift that Samaria receives is always directly correlated to Jerusalem's destiny, redemptively. So when we think about redempt, how God's working out redemptive history, we can see Samaria as being a part of that, even in the prophets. Okay? God explicitly warns the Jews in Exodus 20 about worship. Right. So when we see in, in the Samaritan Pentateuch, they both have the same warnings, 
But what's different between the two? One has established a place of worship on Mount Gerizim and the other in Jerusalem. This is the dialogue between the woman at the well and, and, and Jesus. We're, we're worshiping here on this mountain, but you Jews say that we're to worship in Jerusalem. Here's the distinct differences, right? In the Ten Commandments, what does it say about worship? You're to worship God alone. You'd have no other gods before you. You're not to make graven images. You're not to use God's name in vain, so on and so forth. We see idolatry running rampant. Where? In Samaria. Look at what they're being rebuked for. Look at what they're being called out for. And there are penalties regarding worship and what results and what those results would be in Deuteronomy. You can find that in the Song of Moses specifically before they entered in to the Promised Land. That's in Deuteronomy 31, 30 through 32, verse 47. So prior to entering the promised land, Moses declares judgment that if they fail to worship God correctly, that they will be punished up to being removed from the land. To be removed from the land would be to remove from God's presence. Okay? So upon finishing the house of the Lord, God gives Solomon a sober warning. Let's turn to, let's turn to 2 Chronicles 7, verses 11 through 22. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 11 through 22. It starts here, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, all that, the, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a, as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, doing all according, according to all that I have commanded you, and in keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne, as I have covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule in Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go to serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land, that I, get, that I have given you, and this house that I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast you out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb, I will make it a proverb and byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this, done thus to the land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, he has brought this disaster upon them. So we can see in the prophets, as noted above, that God's prosecutors of his holy law word indicted Israel for their idolatry. We know based on the history what happened to Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern. And what they called out absolutely came to pass. The northern kingdom would ultimately suffer God's judgment, and we can see that fall in 2 Kings 17, 6-23. And then we can further see that restoration in Ezra and Nehemiah. So here we have the scene, all this history has passed, and Jesus and the woman at the well are having this discussion, this 
really deep theological discussion. I think that there was, we we're looking at a summary of this discussion. Not all is there, absolutely. It's not there, he's not there typing and, and jotting away everything that they're saying. But what Jesus summarized as he reviewed with them what, what their discussion was. So let's consider for a brief moment, what is worship? What exactly is worship? Why was it, why did God take it so seriously? Why, why was this a problem? So when Jesus met with this woman, they, their conversation was unique, right, in all the Gospels. He was upfront about who he was. He told her plainly, I am the one, the promised one, the anointed one. He declared himself to her to be the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. He went into specific detail with her about, about what worship really is. In perceiving that Jesus was a prophet, as she declared, the woman proceeded to challenge him about the true place, we find. He refutes her challenge, and he says this, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship itself is a demonstrable sign of respect. God demanded that we worship him in spirit and truth all the way from the garden into the present day and on into eternity. It's used to designate the word uh, proskuneo in the Greek, is used to designate a custom of prostrating oneself before a person's or kissing their feet or the hem of their garment. In, in essence, it is a low, humbly state all the way to the ground, fully prostrate, means you're just laying on the ground before them. You kiss what is most low on them. You kiss their signs of authority. You respect their signs of authority. You fear them. You honor them. It was also used in the sense of, of course, transcendent beings like God. The Hebrew equivalent, which is hishtak avah, if that's appropriate, I can go from there, uh, to bow down. The, the Septuagint uses the same exact as the Hebrew text when it, when it speaks of the proskuneo or the hishtak avah. It sheds more light on the sense that Jesus uses here, particularly in this text, that we are to bow down and prostrate and have a humble estate before God, that we are, as Proverbs would say, the Proverbs 1, to fear God and to be obedient to him in all that he says. To fear God is, is wisdom. Okay. So both the ten tribes in northern Israel and in Judah were judged by God and exiled because they failed to proskuneo, or Hishtachavah, God, appropriately. They erected for themselves high places and false gods. The Samaritan woman's response accurately reflects her belief that the Samaritans, descendants of the northern kingdom, who erected and completing a, a temple of worship on Mount Gerizim during this intertestamental period, believed it to be the correct place of worship. Jesus demolishes this challenge, first by correcting her of her faulty understanding of the correct place of worship, and then her relationship with its proper object, being God, the God of Scripture. So from the earliest writings of Scripture, we need to remember that the location of worship was crucial and explicitly prescribed by God. We know some, we discussed here briefly uh, a week ago or so about the regulative principle of worship, if you're unfamiliar with that. We believe that God has a constraint, a restraint on what is acceptable to worship. What God has revealed about his worship is how we ought to worship, nothing more, nothing less. God has revealed us a, a particular way to worship him, we'd say here in spirit and truth, and we need to define what that clearly is. 
We also know that there are other facts that there are many freedoms within what that worship looks like. I'm not going to discuss that in full today. Uh, but we need to realize that God has prescribed a particular worship and a particular place of worship. And we need to stay within that prescription. If you know, every time in history when man failed to worship God correctly, when he failed to acknowledge who God was, what happened? Man was exiled from his presence. Man was kicked out from the presence of God, kicked out from the blessings of God. Okay, And that was true in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. The most holy presence was in view concerning worship. It was a place to meet with God who declared such to be a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Where we worship God is his sanctuary. Where we spend time with God, where we meet with him, in essence, face to face, as Moses did, is his sanctuary. God declares such to be true in Exodus 29, 42-43. So then we must ask ourselves, where then must true worship be performed? Where, where is the true worship to be carried out? How, how are we to actually accomplish that? <clears throat> so let's return to the text here in John 4. In John 4, it says that although Jesus corrects the woman for misplaced worship in verse 21, he makes a radical claim. If you notice here, it says, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, speaking of Mount Gerizim again in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, which was the city of David, will you worship the Father. Why is that claim, I challenge you in verse 21, why is that claim so radical? Why would that have been such a radical claim? When Jesus says, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, speaking of their place of worship, or in Jerusalem. Why would that have claimed been so radical? Let's consider these provocations that Jesus came with uh, during in, in, the, in this gospel particularly and in the other gospels. What, how did Jesus use Samaria as a provocation? Let's consider that together. Well, at first, interesting enough, Jesus bars the 12 disciples from going to the Samaritans with the good news of the kingdom, right? You can find that in Matthew 10, 5 through 6. So here's Jesus having a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, but he stops his disciples from going and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in Matthew 10, 5 through 6. Then, in being challenged with, who is my neighbor, right, from one of the uh, Sanhedrin lawyers, right, who is my neighbor, Jesus provides this incredible parable of the good Samaritan shedding light on their future redemption, doesn't he? In Luke 10, 30 through 37. If you remember correctly about the parable, he uses the Samaritan as a counterexample of the religious elite. And he challenges him at the end, who's the neighbor? And he, he couldn't even utter the name, the Samaritan. You remember that? Okay. Jesus also, by the way, uh, in uh, Luke 17, 11 through 19, heals a Samaritan leper. Luke notes specifically that it was only the Samaritan leper that returned back to Jesus. And what does Jesus say when he heals him? He says, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Interesting. This foreigner is worshiping the living God. This foreigner recognizes who's standing in front of him. Yet what about the Jews? The other lepers that came to me, oh, they just went their way. They followed Jesus' command, but this, this leper, this foreigner leper, this Samaritan, returned to Jesus and worshiped God and thanked him for what he had done. He's noted, again, guys, this is profound based on their history that we just went through. I know it's boring, but bear with me, okay? I think it's very profound. A vast number of the Samaritan people 
would come to faith based on the woman at the well's testimony. What happened with the woman at the well at the end of the story? We can go on after this. We didn't cover it this morning. But the woman at the well ends up leaving Jesus after their discussion and does what? Goes into the city and declares, you need to come see this man who's told me all that I've ever done. This prophet of Israel has come. And what happened? It says like the whole city came out to see him. Man, it's probably not the case, but I mean, a great vast number of people based on this woman's testimony came to see Jesus Christ. Samaritan woman, she's an effective soul winner, right? And finally, before ascending to the throne of David, Jesus Christ declares to the disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses where? From Jerusalem, most of you can quote this, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You can find that in Acts 1.8. We know later in Acts 8, that a great number of people, of the Samaritans had come to the faith. And this was right at the time after Stephen had been stoned to death. Paul is persecuting the church, and it notes there in Acts 8 that a great number of Samaritans had come to the faith. Philip's preaching was successful in Samaria. So we see here in this text today a foreshadowing of the restoration of the Samaritans in the Gospels, and now which would come to reality. It includes the Gentiles being grafted in to the new covenant in this very text. So the time as Christ declared is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Namely, it has come to it, it, it has come post-resurrection and the ascension of Christ. So true worship, in essence, has now come now that Christ has resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father to take, take his rightful position on the throne. So let's gather a few, a few important points here, okay? Worship of the living God is no longer limited to a fixed shadow among a specific people. I'm going to say that again. Worship of the living God is no longer limited to a fixed shadow among a specific people. Remember, God had given Isra- the Israelites a specific place, a specific format, where to meet him, what it meant to be in his presence, and if they failed to do so, the do this and live covenant, they would have been exiled from his presence, which we find in the northern kingdom and then later in the southern kingdom under the Babylonian captivity. So no longer is it a fixed shadow. That would have been a shadow. The substance of Christ and the true worship is realized in Christ and has now been broken forth out in Christ into the entire world. So what does it mean to correctly worship? You might be asking yourself your question. You're like, okay, that's fantastic. What does it mean to actually worship God in spirit and truth? We know two things specifically from these texts. You can actually find this even in Ezra's prayer. And you can find this all the way throughout Israel's repentance. You can look in every case in point, and I challenge you today to consider this. There are two factors that always exist uh, in in proper worship. One, the proper object. Two, as it's it's conveyed from, from God's revelation. Jesus says later in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is what? Truth. It is truth. You are to be set apart and sanctified by it. You cannot know the living God apart from his word. Peter would say that you have been saved by his word, delivered by his word. His word is continuing. It's it's eternal. What has been conveyed and declared will accomplish its purpose. Jesus Christ is what? As John conveyed in the opening text of John 1. Jesus Christ is the word become flesh, who dwelled among us, right? We can go on through that. Interesting enough, too, 
What was the, always the common rebuke that Jesus gave any of the religious elite? What did he say to them? Have you not read? Do you not know? Right? What is the same exact rebuke that he gives to the woman at the well? Woman, you don't even know what you worship. Salvation's of the Jews. And the very gift of God that's sitting before you is here. I am him. I am the word become flesh, he's saying. Right? We know that he had a conversation just in a chapter earlier with who? Nicodemus, the spiritual leader, who was terrified of his own people, and he went by night to go have a visit with Jesus. And what did Jesus tell him? True worshipers will come, will, will come, to, will come about. Who, who will be the true worshipers of God? Those who inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are born what? Of the Spirit. And where the, spin, the Spirit goes, no one knows. How he works, no one knows. But it's by the Spirit of God that one must be born again. Just a, just a chapter earlier than that, John the Baptist declares Jesus Christ's exaltation is authority. And just before that, in the chapter beginning, we, did, we figure out who it, who it is exactly that Jesus is. John is trying to give us a very clear picture. Look at what Jesus is doing. And if you read John, by the way, John is vastly different from any other gospel, what's considered the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a theologically rich and powerful text that gives us a very clear idea of what the, who Christ is as a person and his deity. That's why John is one of the, one of the most disputed gospels in all, in all of the, uh, among all the other gospels. So we have the deity of Christ. He is exalted above John the Baptist. He purges, he goes in right, right away in John. He goes in and cleanses the house of God. He has a conversation with one of the religious elite, who I believe, Nicodemus, he became a believer later. He declares exactly who it is that receives the kingdom of God. And now here he is with a woman at the well in Samaria, chapter 4. I mean, it's this boom, boom, boom. Jesus is at work. Jesus is moving. And it's the Spirit of God leading him. It's the Spirit of God directing him. So when it says, we must worship in spirit, it's not saying, per se, the Holy Spirit, although we know that that's true. We must worship in the Spirit. It's the Spirit at work in us, as Paul says, that groans through us, even words that we cannot utter ourselves. It's the Spirit of God that leads us into worship. But what does Jesus mean by in the Spirit? Okay, the word uh, pneuma, okay, specifically, is the word for the Spirit here in the Greek. And it's the source, it's the, the idea and concept is that it's the source and seed of insight, feeling, and will, okay? It generically, it's re- representative of a part of the human inner life when we think about our human inner working. This specific text uh, has, a, has a unique usage, right? It's the pure inner worship of God, and it has nothing to do with holy times, places, or ceremonies. So you have to think, okay, then what does this mean? What is Jesus getting at here? Anybody who's spent some time with, with us in the Sunday school, I've brought up that worship is occurring. We are made and created to worship. We were designed to worship the living God by virtue of what? Being made in his image. So ideally, this is kind of the way it looks. If you're worshiping God, you're doing so out and about in your life throughout your week, and then what happens? You come to gather together on an appointed time, although Jesus is saying this is happening at all times. You come to gather an appointed time with a group of people, the congregation of God, and worship and continue in that worship. And what are you here for? to be refreshed in the fellowship of the communion of saints, to have the being washed by the water of the word, right? And to recognize the faith of one another and the fellowship that we have in Christ through the communion, which we'll be celebrating here in a minute. To baptize new believers coming into the faith, watching God 
and taking joy in what Christ is doing by expanding his kingdom through the gospel. That's what we're here for. And then as we are encouraged, equipped, as it says the leaders are here to equip the saints for the work of ministry, we go out from here as the first day of the week into our new week, what? Doing the work of ministry worshipfully. The gospel itself, as it expands out, as the kingdom of God expands out through the the good news, is basically a call to worship, which begins here in our group as we encourage one another in the faith, and we send one another out. You leave here worshiping, and that worship is spilling over this this idea of Ezekiel's temple, the the living water, which is spilling over out into the world, is God's people worship, worship, worshiping the living God in every moment and every day of their life. And it's giving God glory in all things. It's doing things in faith. Right? Think about what worship looks like. Worship is not limited, I guess what I'm saying, to this moment, this time, this convocation. Although this, we believe that there's a special means of grace in this gathering, it's not limited to that. By no means is it limited to that. So when Jesus is saying you are to worship in spirit, that means in all times, at all places, everywhere, perfectly, eternally. Just like the holy angels who cry out, holy, 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 everlasting. We are to do that in all facets of our life with great joy, okay? In truth is the second component. You're to worship in spirit with all of your being and all of you are loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? But you're to do so in truth. You cannot do that unless you have the truth. The truth, he says here, is aletheia, okay? And the truth just means it's truly true. It's verity. It's hiding nothing. You're, you're hiding nothing in your life. You're doing all things within you perfectly, truthfully. And in this specific sense, it means to be content with what is true. That your life demonstrates a contentment with what is true. That Jesus, as he concludes in the Sermon on the Mount, you're what? You're found to be one building your house on his word, standing firm and fast on it. That Christianity itself, the word conveyed in the word of God, is the ultimate truth. So when you think about what a life is to look like, when Jesus says in all around you, it's not a, it may happen or could possibly happen, the storms might come, the trials might come, but it is what? It is an emphatic, it will happen at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So there will be two kinds of people, Jesus says, the ones who have built their lives on his word, standing firm on, on the rock of his word, having built their foundation on the rock, and there'll be others who have built their house on the sand. And what happens when those trials come? When they come, not if they come. When they come, what happens to those people? The ones who have built their house on the sand get destroyed. That's actually interesting enough, exactly how Proverbs, or, uh, Psalm 1 begins and ends. There's a type of person who banks their entire life and meditates on God's word day and night, is like a tree planted by the water, who always bears fruit and its leaves never withers. And then there's the others who's compared... The evil wicked men do what? They're, they're like the chaff. There's this remnant blown away in the wind. They will not remain. So you're either building your house on the word of God. You're worshiping based on what God has commanded of you. Right? As, as, as Solomon concludes that in, in Ecclesiastes, truly man's all is to obey God's commandments and fear him. Right? To worship him faithfully. You're either going to be like this person, be destroyed, or you're going to be like this person who banks everything on on his word. Jesus says in John 8, as a matter of fact, later, that true worshipers, those who trust his word, are what? Are his disciples, and what? They'll know the truth, and the truth will what? The truth will set them free, okay? 
So I think I've belabored that point, maybe. Um, <laughs> I beat that horse to death, as Greg said earlier this morning, right? So if you think about it, let's, let's, let's just look at some practical points here, okay? And then we'll conclude. What can we learn from history? That's what we have the scriptures for. What must we understand about our family? Note, the, note what the woman at the well begins with. We have this history. We have this, I have this family heritage, this lineage. And what must we gather about worship and in our understanding of this? What, what, what do I want you to leave with as you think about these things today? Okay, What do we need to remember? If you, um, scripture, for the most part, scripture, for the most part, is a book of remembrance. Okay? Oftentimes, when we, when we start noticing the world is sort of crumbling around us, difficulties are happening and come upon us. Guys, we're in, we're in a new year okay, as we enter into worship in a new year. We need to think about those things. We need to look at how God has been faithful in the past. What is the history? What is God at work in redemptive history? What are we moving towards? Where do we find ourselves positionally in this redemptive story? Who, what family are we part of? We are in Christ. Our family, we are of a holy royal priesthood, as Jonathan's gone over in the last few, few weeks in Peter. Who is our family? Where do we worship? As we heard in the scripture reading, we worship at Zion, no longer Sinai. We are the holy people of God. We are the royal priesthood. We are the new Israel, in essence, right? We are the people of God, called out and separated to expand the kingdom of God. Our family is unique in Christ. Our brothers and sisters are those in Christ. And we are, we are somewhere positionally in history right now as God's working out his promised covenant to the very end until he returns. And so as we worship, as we consider worship, I want you to think about this. What does it mean to be a worshipful people? Think about this. I want you to carefully think about what it means to be a worshipful people. Worship ought to be humbly directed towards God with a deep heartfelt devotion, emotionally stricken with joy, awe and wonder, filled with gratitude. Worship should be overwhelmingly beautiful and exuded and executed, excuse me, with fierce precision, worthy of the majestic object of its affection. Those visiting for the first time in our church, if they were to observe, should stagger in amazement at such a spectacle. Those who are around us should stagger in amazement at who we are in Christ, because we are. We are awe-stricken, joy-filled people who recognize what we have in Christ and how amazing it is. It's the very thing Christ said to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift that was sitting in front of you, you would ask, you'd be asking me for the water that, that gives life that you'd never thirst again. If you understood the gift in Christ, you would never again stress. You would never again be fretful. You wouldn't be concerned about 2021 and COVID-19. Let me say that. You wouldn't be concerned as much as people really are. You'd be, you'd be awestricken by the reality that you are standing in the middle of redemptive history with a sovereign God at work, controlling history, who holds all things together by the word of his power, who is fully in control and is not worried about COVID-19. He controls every molecule. There's not one rogue, as Abraham Kuyper says. Not one rogue molecule exists. So we want to think here together. Let's, in closing, for the first time since Eden, the fallen Eden, excuse me, worship was to be performed without designation and location. 
in full exposure to God's holy presence, where the flaming sword and the cherubim have been lowered, permitting again access to the tree of life in Christ. Man, because of the perfect work of Christ on the cross, dwells with God unhindered and unashamedly, in confidence, as the author of Hebrews says, drawing near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. The restoration of fellowship with God and between God and man has been in view since eternity past. So it is by no means a novel concept. All of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, have been given unhindered access to God's holy presence because of Christ's sacrifice. For through him, we have both access in one spirit to the Father, Paul says in Ephesians 2.18. Moreover, it is in Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that means all of us, all the people of God, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. With the author of Hebrews, we Christians must revel. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkle blood which speaks better of the word than of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence, awe, and for our God who is a consuming fire. We must therefore worshipfully conclude with David, who said this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have a better understanding today of what what it means to worship in spirit and truth, to understand, Jesus, what it is that you are conveying to the woman at the well. That worship has moved beyond mountains, specific places. Although we gather together as a special means of grace to celebrate you the first day of every week, to celebrate your resurrection and your ascension and your present enthronement and the establishment of your kingdom and its expansion uh, by the gospel, that we are to be worshipers in spirit and truth in all things, that we are to love you, God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, which is the fulfillment, it says, of all the law, that we worship in everything that we do. Worship is not relegated to a particular song or a dance or clashing cymbals or music, the lute and the lyre. Worship is to be a continued thing. The gospel itself is a call to worship God appropriately has been conveyed by your word. Lord, I pray that we'd have a clear understanding today that we'd walk out of here greater and more worshipful people in an appreciation for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray you continue your blessing on our worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.